This is the Book of Ruth podcast, the companion discussion to the narrative read by Greg Ball. I'm Joshua Savage, producer of the Book of Ruth. I'm joined in these episodes by Elijah DeYoung, recent graduate of Mid-America Reformed Seminary. Elijah has served as a pastoral intern at Orthodox Presbyterian churches in Joliet, Illinois, and Concho, Arizona. He is currently serving as a year-long intern at the OPC Church in Grants Pass, Oregon. In this episode, Elijah and I discuss the Book of Ruth as a whole, the context of the narrative, overall themes, the structure of the Book of Ruth, the main characters, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, and how we see Christ in this Old Testament book. Thanks for joining me, Elijah. Thank you for having me. So in this uh, episode, let's start by getting your reaction to this statement by Matthew Henry. He, He says in his commentary on Ruth, the book of Ruth relates not miracles, nor laws, wars, nor victories, nor the revolutions of states, but the affliction first and afterwards the comfort of Naomi the conversion first and afterwards the preferment of Ruth. Many such events have happened, which perhaps we may think is well worthy to be recorded, but these God saw fit to transmit the knowledge of to us. Wow. That's powerful. I love how he brings out just that kind of telescoping view. You know, the the Bible as a whole just speaks to so many different levels and like, you know, you look at the book of Exodus, it's a national level. Uh, you look at the New Testament and it's, uh, it's worldwide, you know, taking the gospel to the nations. But here we see this very private, very personal story of a family. And, you know, it's, it's a reminder that, yes, it, it begins, you know, in the, in the nature of Israel, or in the nation of Israel. And it ends by talking about the genealogy that will eventually lead to Christ. But this here this is everyday stuff that could happen to anybody and it happens to these people and God relates that to us and, and brings that to us in a very personal way. It's just, that's wonderful. Yeah. I I think this really sums up what impacts me with the book of Ruth. It's one of those books that you can read in 20 minutes. I think the recording that Greg Ball does is 20 minutes and that's a very dynamic reading, but the more that you listen to it or the more you read it, it does impact, I think, in that way where it's not this grand scheme of history. It's the small, the, the small yeah. things that maybe you would never, never notice. And that's what God uses to accomplish as well. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the context of Ruth. Do we know the author? Um, when do these events take place? Where does this fit in, in the, uh, the Bible? Yeah. So, you know, in, in preaching through this, I decided not to focus so much on the author because it's not explicitly stated in uh, in the book itself. You know, there's a lot of conjecture about that, which is interesting, fascinating uh, discussion. But, you know, the main context, the, the main idea God wanted us to start the book with was, uh, you know, when this started, uh, when this happened. And, you know, that's brought out in the days the judges ruled, you know, there's a famine in the land. And that's not just a time marker right there. It's tempting to see that as just a time marker and move on. But that's a a spiritual marker for the nation of Israel as a whole. 
because we see, you know, this is, okay, so this is the time when the judges rules. We're waiting for a king. We're waiting for uh, God to establish uh, David, of course, you know, Saul first, then David. Um, but there's a famine in the land. You know, is this just is this just setting the the stage for Ruth and for her family uh, to meet Elimelech and and his family, or is it something deeper? And, and I think that the the truth is, you know, this shows there's sin in Israel. Of course, there's always sin in Israel, but this is a this comes at the end of a cycle. You know, in Judges we see that cycle over and over, and here we see okay, so we're right at the the peak of a cycle where God has said enough is enough. I'm bringing my people to their knees and and we see this chastisement to bring them back to him. Let me quick look up Judges. Uh, I, I have a passage here, which I think just brings this out so nicely. Um, so, you know, it's the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they hoard after other gods and bowed down to them. And they soon turned away from the ways in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commands of the Lord, and they did not do so. And whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was the, with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies of all the days of the judge. You know, we have this, you know, God being with them for the for the, the extent of the judges, you know, the judges' reign. Um, but whenever the judge died, we see this in verse, in Judges 2, verse 19, uh, they turned back, and they were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They didn't drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And then God's anger is kindled. And he says, because you've transgressed my covenant, because you've uh, turned your back on me, I will no longer uh, drive out uh, any more of the nations. I'm going to bring judgment on you. I'm going to bring chastisement. So you see hardship. So it's very obvious that you have this famine is not happenstance. This is God working. So that's the macro level. God is working with his people. He's actually having having grace on them through chastisement. It's not punishment. It's not, uh, you know, just a smackdown where God says, all right, I've had enough. I'm punishing you and I'm going my way. I'm out of this. It's a chastisement because he wants to bring them back and he wants to, to nurture them. And it does come to mind too. We don't know, I guess, how many generations this is removed from the children of Israel going into the land, but it does, it, it does remind you of Moses's, you know, appeal to them. Uh, if you follow God, you will be blessed. If you do not follow God, if you turn your back on him, um, you, you will be under condemnation. And so maybe as you're saying the macro level, I think this fits very well to the very beginning of this book, which we'll talk about in chapter one, the fact mm-hmm. that instead of trusting God where they were, Elimelech and his family turned their back on the promise and go to Moab. Um, and that might bring us to some, some themes. What are some major themes in this book? Well, uh, we'll get, we'll probably get into the theme of, of redeemers and, and redeemers wings, which is always interesting. (laughs) Yes. Uh, It's like the, uh, the age old, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings question. Do Balrogs have wings? Uh, (laughs) Does a redeemer have wings? Well, the answer is yes. Um, (laughs) early on in this book, we have uh, the theme of consequence to decisions. So um, it's, you've, you've got Naomi and Elimelech starting right off. They see there's hunger in Israel and they have one way, one option before them. That's really it. Covenantally, they have one option and that is to turn to God, to depend on God and God will feed them. 
God is not capricious. God is not uh, out to get them, but they really, you know, they're, they're called to turn. And what do they do? They, they book it to, um, to Moab. So you have this, this decision, whether it was Naomi or Elimelech or both of them together uh, to flee. And it, it reminds me a lot of Jonah actually. And then like Jonah continues facing repercussions and, and, uh, reactions to his choice. So we see Naomi and her family seeing repercussions and, and consequences of disobeying God. So I think that's one of the controlling ones. And we see that Naomi come back to that at the end of the chapter a little bit too, but God's providence, God's providence. I, I know it's a cop out to say that I, because God's providence is always the theme of, you know, the entire scriptures, but that is that is primarily how we see that interacting with human decisions. And I think we'll see that, uh, we'll talk in chapter two of the happenstance. Yeah. <laughs> Ruth oh, happens yeah. to go, but it does seem like there's a very clear uh, narrative purpose there. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. Well, let me get your take on this as well. I've heard from various people, and in, in fact, just reading it myself, this narrative seems to be one of the most beautifully put together narratives in all of mm-hmm. scripture. Um, obviously the chapter verse designations are later additions, but it does seem to be this incredible narrative structure that is tying so many things together in such a short period of time. So uh, what are your thoughts on, on just the narrative structure of the book? Yeah. Okay. So I, I, translated through this when we were when I was taking Hebrew uh, 101 uh, at Mid-America and it was chiasm on chiasm and our, our professor just loved to point out the chiasm so that's like you know a uh, a prime or, uh, well actually I guess you could say a b c c prime b prime a prime you know like it's a telescoping thing uh, it it shows the you know c is really the point of this passage and Ruth is chock full of those so you see that beautiful like grammar work. Um, and, you know, on top of that, look at chapter two and you see like it starts out with this seemingly random discussion of Boaz, like just a mention. And then it's right back into the narrative. Like, okay, what happens next? And, you know, that's the sort of thing that you almost skip over. As a casual reader, you'll just be like, okay, yeah, background information. But then as you dig into it, you're like, okay, we need to know that at that point. This is not the focus yet of this passage, but the, the writer obviously knew that we would need to know this later on. And he just kind of, kind of puts it in there so that later on we can draw the connection ourselves and say, what, you know, uh, that's how it all fits together. So, yeah. So to kind of pick up on that idea of the, uh, the chiasm, um, I think Sinclair Ferguson in his commentary on Ruth, which is called uh, faithful God, which is a very, very good read. He, he mentions this as kind of a turning point or it's coming at the middle of the passage and things narratively work toward that middle and they work out from it. So as we'll probably talk about in the beginning of or the middle of Ruth, there is a central point in, in, in chapter one. There's a central point in chapter two, a central point in chapter three, a central point in chapter four. And the narrative of those chapters works into it and emphasizes that meaning, which then flows to the rest of the chapter. So it's kind of like a, maybe a funnel to the middle yeah. and a reverse a funnel. funnel. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> funnel theory. Right? I think that that's something that's definitely been said. I'm sure. <laughs> if not, then uh, it, it sounds good. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so 
so let's talk very briefly and we will go into more of this detail in the chapters, but let's just get a character sketch of the three major characters. And I think it's probably safe to say the three major characters are Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. So let's talk about Naomi first. Who is, who is Naomi and what do we see in her journey? What about character number one? God, no, I'm kidding. Ah. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) We can talk about that as well. (laughs) We're talking about human characters. I get that. Um, Naomi, I think, and this is something that is a, it's a fascinating way to read this book. Naomi is in in essence, the main character of this book. And, you know, main characters don't necessarily always have to be the people who get the most screen time. You know, the people who are talked about most who the narrative follows, but you know, you really have to ask, what is the point of this book? Is the point to tell us about uh, Ruth and her adventures following Naomi around, uh, you know, interacting with Boaz? No. You know, is the is the point really to talk about Boaz uh, and his his dramatic and beautiful love story and and you know to be a an example of chivalry you know to to people today? No, uh, the the point of this book is to show how God works through His tools, His instruments, to change the the heart and the mind and the perspective of uh, His servant, His 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 person, His people. Uh, you know, specifically here, Naomi. So, you know, as we look at this this passage, we see the book starts out with Naomi. Uh, you have in verse two, Elimelech and Naomi, and and the name of her two sons were Malon and Kilion. The you know three out of those four characters die off in the next couple of verses, and what we have left is Naomi. And then at the end of of chapter one, we see you know verse. 22. So Naomi returned, headlined, you know, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her. And they came to Bethel or Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. You have a, an inclusio. You know, the book or the, the chapter begins and ends with Naomi. And she's in a dark place. She's about to lose her people. She's about to try to get rid of her daughters-in-law. <laughs> and she's made a bad choice. At the very best, she's made a bad choice. Uh, she and her husband have made a bad choice. And so, you know, what follows in the rest of the book is God working on her and saying, you are mine. I am, and I am yours and I'm going to work on you. I'm not going to desert you when you blame things on me. I'm not going to get fed up with you. I'm going to love you. And that's what we see. And I think what's interesting as we see her growth in all four chapters, it's, it's very much like us, right? We have to relearn things and she learns something very, very powerfully in chapter two, but in the beginning of chapter three, when she has this interesting proposal for Ruth, we might be able to say maybe she's going back down the path she went on at the very beginning, which is trusting in her own devices. So I I think that's very interesting. And we'll talk about that through the chapters. How about Ruth? (laughs) What is the journey of Ruth? I, okay. When I, when I preached through this, I was so fascinated with Ruth because obviously she, you know, the book's named after her. Um, She is God's, chosen tool for this even more so i think than boaz who is the male redeemer she's a a female moabitess um so double minority there (laughs) and she's she's dealing with i guess you could say the wrath of god you know there's her state as a moabitess is dire she's basically got this black mark against her from the beginning 
Naomi and her family are not supposed to even be really consorting with her. Um, and her history is a nation which has harmed and hindered Israel, God's chosen people. We see Ruth starting out with black marks against her name, but she has perhaps the most simple, trusting, loving uh, acceptance of both Naomi and her God, which then God uses throughout the book. And honestly speaking, like we don't see Ruth sin throughout this book, which is kind of a mind bender. Like usually main characters of books, uh, the, the figures that we think of as the characters of, of the, the Bible who are, you know, are real dynamic characters, usually they're, they're very flawed people. You think of David right off the bat and like all the things he goes through. And then you see Ruth and, you know, it's so tempting to be like, oh, St. Ruth, uh, you know, thank you for, <laughs> thank you for being perfect. But at the same time, we do have to realize she's a human and she is flawed. She's a sinner. Um, but God uses her and her reputation is spotless because of her trust. Yes, and I think that's a very interesting thing with these narratives in in general, and and you probably can speak way more to this than I can. But the, the real people in these narratives, it's not that we that they don't sin, like you're saying, but that we that the author is not highlighting that for a specific reason. And and with Ruth, instead, we see her profound courage in chapter one, not only to leave her her culture and religion. But as far as we know, she might be leaving all friends and family that she will never see again. And she's going into poverty. Um, she has no husband. She is going into a country she does not know. But then what strikes Boaz when he looks at her in chapter two and sees who she is, uh, we see a profound trust in God, a respect, a humility, a meekness, and also just a strong character who's, who's willing to go uh, into a place she does not know among people she does not know and work there as diligently as she can. Even following the law of God in that and what she does, uh, we don't know exactly how much she knew of the law of God, but apparently she's schooled in enough to know that she can go glean somewhat safely. Like that's her right as an alien and a stranger in the land. She's allowed to go and glean and she takes advantage of that. And God uses his own law through her and her obedience of that law powerfully. And that leads us to Boaz, who I, I also have to say, the more that I've been listening to this as I've been editing and, and producing the audio, the more I am so impressed with who Boaz is. At, at first glance, I think he seems to be a very shallow character. Um, but in fact, I think he also does have a journey as well. So what, what do you think is the journey of Boaz from when we first meet him to where we end? Oh, well, I, I think, you know, I, I think you have something in your head that I, I'm, I didn't focus on as much, but I'll, let me take a stab at this. <laughs> I, I do think, uh, again, we have to recognize that, that Boaz is a sinner. First off. And he has all the impulses and he has all of the, he's not a, he's not a, he's a type of Christ, but he is not Christ. So he's put in very, very tricky scenarios. He, he's even put in a, a scenario where he could drive Ruth out of uh, his, his field for economic gain. Later on, he's put into a, a scenario where he could take advantage of Ruth very easily. But God works in his heart. And we see him 
you know, in, in that first act of curiosity, love, reaching out to Ruth and saying, you can glean here, my daughter, you're safe here. And then he gives her a gift and everything just keeps increasing off of that. You know, his, his faithfulness to God's law is magnified in his, uh, his threshing floor decision. Uh, and then later on his gift is even greater. And, you know, essentially his gift is the greatest in, in the long run because he's part of the line of Christ. He's part of the genealogy that leads to Christ and, and the ultimate hope for humanity. So, but yes, you sound, you've got like this smile, like, you know what you want to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think he's, I think he's interesting because it's so easy to read him as this kind of legalistic type person. Um, at least when I was growing up, that's how I, I used to kind of read him as he's the guy that always does the right thing. And I yeah. think that's, that's not really the case. I think instead he is a prototype of David as a, as a man after God's own heart, he sees the spiritual realities of things. And so the way that, that uh, Greg reads chapter two, where he talks to his, his, uh, his foreman, I think perhaps is, is the person in the field. And who is this? And the text seems to emphasize, this is a Moabitess, <laughs> you know, yes. this is the Moabitess who came from Moab. This is, but Boaz sees deeper. And I think it, it goes to his praise of her, um, that, that he sees Ruth as somebody who is a true convert, who is, fleeing to the protection of God's wing. And so one thing I would like to ask you as we start to wrap up this, uh, this general overview is this idea of under the wing of God, under the wing of protection. Um, that's blatantly uh, said by Boaz in chapter two. And then in chapter three, um, when Ruth says who she is after laying at his feet, she says, spread the, the, the corner of your garment. But, but if I'm correct, I think the original is spread your wing over me, which seems yes. to have this kind of yeah. deeper refrain. <laughs> yeah. It's such a lovely, lovely image because we see this multiple places throughout the old Testament, the idea of, you know, the wing covering and you look forward to uh, Boaz's, many, 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 many generations down his, his descendant, you know, Christ. And Christ looks at, at the nation and he says he wants to gather them under his wing the way a hen gathers chicks under her wing. Okay, so you have that image. But then you think about the way that Christ covers us in the wing of his blood. He, he covers us and we are protected in that. We are uh, washed by his blood, protected by his blood, and we are made righteous by his blood. And so this right here, what we see by this, this imagery of a wing is like the down payment. We have, uh, we have Boaz saying, look, you, you've sought refuge you know, under this wing. And then later on you have uh, Ruth saying, you know, spread your wing over me. It's a beautiful way of saying, hey, down the road, there's an even greater wing, you know, just wait for the, the real wings to come out, I guess you could say. But yeah, the, it's a, I, I just, I don't know, I, I can't even 
put words to just how how wonderful an image that is of the the covering and the protecting and it's it's a fatherly love it's yeah in some ways a motherly love too just that nurture you know and that care but at the same time you know ultimate protection too so So i think to close then let's let's talk about where and how do we see christ uh in the book of ruth yeah well literally everywhere (laughs) everywhere (laughs) every line (laughs) um it is really fascinating because I do think a lot of uh, a lot of people read this as you know, just the basics uh, a love story, and this is something that is preached at a marriage, a wedding ceremony, um, and it, it can be obviously that's that's okay. I'm not bashing wedding ceremonies that use Ruth, um, <laughs> but but the real the real focus of this is just highlighted right at the end with the genealogy. That's where it zooms back out and says, this is everything that this whole book is pointing to, the genealogy. And of course, then you look forward to Matthew uh, Matthew 1, and the genealogy is reflected there too with some surprising twists, you know, clickbait. Uh, <laughs> you have Christ like right there, and then the connection between Ruth, the end of Ruth and the beginning of the New Testament is just bleak. But then also you have the whole idea of uh, inheritance. God loves his people. God promises his people an inheritance, something that keeps coming up uh, throughout the minor prophets. And, and uh, here in Ruth, it's just uh, so beautifully spoken about, especially with, with Obed. Yeah, yeah. I, I probably will say that the whole book points towards this, you know, I'll, I'll have a different this every time, but like <laughs> I, would say, I would say the book points in a, in a large part towards Obed too. Because you know, very in micro picture, micro scale, Obed is the answer to Ruth and Naomi's problem. And of course, Obed is the child that is born. Uh, and then this this previews back to the promise in the garden that's given that you know the uh, of the the child eventually that will save. And every woman throughout the Old Testament is hoping that her child will be that child. Whether they know it or not, you know, there's this this idea that this could be it. Um, and then, in a very real way, Obed is the savior of this family. And then you pull back out to the micro or the macro scale, and you have Jesus, the savior of of humanity, the, the savior of God's elect. Uh, who this is just like a, a giant laser pointer saying, "Hey, this is cool. This small picture is cool. Look at the big picture." It's, it's inescapable. So, and that's just some of the ways I think. <laughs> yes. And again, um, Sinclair Ferguson has this wonderful quote in, in his commentary, faithful God and exposition of the book of Ruth. He says the book of Ruth records experiences of joy and sorrow. It tells a story of home life, romance and marriage or unexpected conversion and radical consecration. The book of Ruth is multum in parvo, which is Latin, which means much in little, a little book containing more about God than its size would suggest. Here we will find many lessons about his grace and his providence. And I think what works into this, and especially where Christ is seen is, um, you might say from the, from the eyes of the world, Christ was uh, very little. 
a carpenter <laughs> in the middle of this, this, this nowhere land of, of Galilee. Where does this guy come from? That's what the, the Pharisees keep saying to him. Um, it's easy to overlook him. And yet, and even the disciples did. And yet, of course, Christ is the son of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in this book, I think with, with Ruth, we see this peeling back of the veil for what God is doing in these people's lives through the sin and the rebellion of, of Elimelech um, and to Naomi in some part, he works with Ruth, a Moabitess who converts to Christ, who converts to the God of Israel, who is therefore in the covenant. Um, Boaz, the son of, of Rahab, the harlot, <laughs> who's, who's a man after God's own heart, who sees past these things and they don't know that King David is a couple generations away, but they yeah. certainly could not have known that yeah. King Jesus is even more generations down the way. The Book of Ruth is read by Greg Ball, cover design by Seth Haller, music by Scott Buckley. You can hear more of his amazing music at scottbuckley.com.au. The Book of Ruth and this podcast are produced by me, Josh Savage. To listen to our recording or read our translation of all four chapters of Ruth, visit our ReadyMag site, linked in the show notes below. Subscribe to our feed on iTunes Podcasts and Spotify Podcasts. Podcasts.